This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, Episode 35, Structuring Insurance. It's all about how you think. Traditional financial planning is no longer working. And in the new normal economy, your hosts, Mark Willis and Holly Bach, invite you to join us as we engage the new and improved steps for establishing financial sanity. Be curious. Be stable. Be sane. This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. Welcome, everybody, to another episode. Uh, With me in the studio today is Katrina Willis. Hello. And Holly Bach. Hello, everyone. And I'm Mark Willis, your host. Well, we're happy to have you guys here, and uh, there's some important things that we want to bring to your attention, and it's honestly something that we get brought to our attention fairly often when we're talking with folks who have just started learning about some of these very odd, not your average type ways of putting away for the future. Uh, and that is the, the just raw honesty. There's some bias out there in the marketplace toward uh, whole life insurance and specifically whole life insurance designed for maximum cash accumulation. I don't know what it is, but uh, it's almost like the marketing departments of most life insurance companies are really stuck in the 19... 40s, 50s. I mean, really, they're, it's very strange how, how uh, I don't know if it's just a misperception or if it's intentional. Maybe they'd rather pay out big dividends than pay for a bunch of commercials at the Super Bowl. But there's a lot of misunderstanding out there about whole life insurance as a result. So, you know, as a, uh, you know, good, as best as we can, we're trying to put the uh, uh, wrong information to rest and bring the truth to light. But the truth is, there's just a lot of bias out there. And Holly, what do you think that is? Why is there such a tremendous slant against whole life insurance in, in the marketplace? Well, I think you, know, you, you have to think through why, do, why does anyone have a bias against anything, right? Well, normally it's because you heard something from someone else or you, you know, you, whether it's a, a TV show, a radio ad, or, you know, an actual friend or colleague, you know, they, they make these comments of making blanket statements about things that you then absorb and kind of take as truth in a way. And so, you know, it might just be that there's, I don't know, kind of a a bias that's been self-perpetuating itself, where one person says it, then another person says it. Next thing you know, you have, you know, a lot of people out there, millions of people out mm-hmm. there that have these kind of set biases. And, and honestly, the reason why I think that that's more true than people maybe want to believe is because in working in this industry and, and ha- you know having this job in this profession, you hear the same things. If every single person was coming to me with like a different um, concern or a different, you know, I, I probably wouldn't necessarily think that. I would probably just think, oh, okay, these people really thought through their situation or they thought through this and this is the concern that they came up with. But you'll literally hear the exact same phrases. People are like carbon copying the exact same phrases back to you. And you're like, you just heard that somewhere. Mm, <laughs> you know, yep. you didn't actually come up with that on your own. You heard you know, whether it was another financial advisor, whether it was some, you know, TV show or whatever, and you're just kind of repeating what you heard. And that's why I think a lot of times it's it's a true bias and not necessarily in line with reality or with maybe is actually concerning people. Not that it's not legitimate, but I think that it, you know, that's a lot of why they're so strong and so um, kind of perpetuating in, in this particular industry anyways. And a lot of times I feel like it, it's 
the actual biases themselves just come from a place of, of misunderstanding of mm-hmm. the product and the vehicle itself. Um, you know, people will make different comments about their bias and it's like, yes, that absolutely may have been true for that one single individual. You know, right. your your neighbor Joe had, you know, X experience with life insurance and there's a good chance that is absolutely true of, of his experience. There's you know, how many thousand mutual funds out there? I'm sure there's some terrible ones. Yeah. I'm sure there's some great ones. Oh, you know? yeah. You know, I had mutual funds that lost me money in, you know, the longest mm-hmm. running bull market, yeah. you know? So it's mm-hmm. like, <laughs> yep. you know, there and then there were ones that did not do that. So, you know, people can have, you know, different experiences with the exact same type of vehicle. And I think that's a lot of what's, what's happening here, too. And, you know, so people hear, you know, whole life insurance and they think, oh, well, that's just about a death benefit. You know, that's just about taking care of my family if I die. That's not actually in any way going to help me while I'm alive. And so, you know, how how is that even going to work out? And it's like, well, the reality is that a life insurance policy, a whole life insurance policy is more than just a death benefit. The death benefits just what people know about, but the part that people don't normally necessarily know as much about is that there's also a cash value. And so it's both of those things that work together within the same product um, that kind of create this dynamic where it's useful not only for a death benefit, but also living benefits as well. So I know that's kind of a, you know, big one right off the bat people will have. You know, you say you say whole life insurance and they say death benefit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like, well no, here whole life insurance think cash, cash value. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, can can become the reality. Um, I know another just kind of like blanket uh, statement I'll hear a lot, Mark, is um, it's not a great place to save money or, you know, whole life insurance. I heard that's a terrible place to save or, you know, I heard this. You know, how would you maybe respond to that particular bias? Yeah, I agree. Like 90, <laughs> 90% plus of the time, I'd say it's, a, it's you know, don't, don't look at this as a overnight get rich quick scheme. It's, it's a long-term financial vehicle. And especially in the first, you know, uh, 20 years for old-fashioned whole life, uh, it's a, you know, you'll have less money in the cash value than you've put in there as far as your contributions or premiums. So, you know, this is not meant to be, especially the old fashioned type of whole life. Now, you know, we could say that uh, a Model T car is a terrible way to drive across the country, right? Uh, but, you know, there's been some, guess what? There's been some improvements on our vehicles and this thing called the airplane. Uh, the airplane is, is a terrible way to drive to the grocery store you know, it's in- extremely inefficient. You have to wait in line. You have to burn a lot of fuel that first mile or two. So don't drive and don't fly an airplane to the grocery store. Use the airplane for what it was meant for, cross country, long distance, for the long haul. And that's what these policies that we design are really all about. We design it with maximum cash accumulation to really flood into the cash value in the first few years. Even in the first few months, you've got money in that thing. Uh, but it's going to have a negative yield in the first few years. This is not supposed to be an investment. This is supposed to be a cash-on-cash alternative to your other cash equivalents, like money market accounts, CDs, savings, bonds, that sort of thing. So I agree. I think it's not supposed to be competing with a mutual fund. Uh, You'll absolutely be bored to tears with the returns on this thing, especially when the market has been going up, 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 up. Now, thank goodness you'll be (laughs) <laughs> bored to tears when the market is crashing to the to the depths of the ocean too. So it's that long, safe, steady return that I feel like most people just aren't aware of or think about. Um, you know, when you want your money growing the fastest is toward the end. Uh, you know, the hardest fall is when you've got the most to lose. 
And so when do you want your money growing the fastest? When do you want it to be competing as a good rate of return? It's you know when we can least afford to lose the cash, which is toward the end of the lifespan, when our money is going to need to grow the fastest. And that's exactly what these policies let us do. Um, but a lot of folks think that that first few three, four years is just too expensive. You know, Holly, where, where do you take folks when, when they come to you with that initial uh, bias? Oh, I heard from my kindergarten teacher that this thing is just way too expensive. And, you know, of course, anything a kindergarten teacher says about complex financial instruments is absolutely true all the time, right? So, <laughs> Yeah, no, you'll hear that one a lot. And, and again, this is another one where it's like, I know you just heard this from someone or you just, you know, you just heard this you know, online or whatever, you know, your, you know, other financial advisor just said, oh, whole life insurance, you don't want that. It's expensive. And it's like, okay, well, first off, you know, compared to what? Right. You know, it, mm-hmm. it compared to term. Mm. Yeah. Well, compared to term, absolutely true. Um, you know, but, you know, compared to other things as well, and, and we'll actually be talking yeah. about that in our next episode, we'll get into that comparison a little bit more. But mm-hmm. um, as far as term, yes, you know, term is cheaper. Mm-hmm. When you're young, mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> when you're young. Um, and so when you have, you know, sometimes people are thinking through, you know, if I can have X number of dollars more of insurance coverage for the same number of dollars, they'd prefer to do that, right? It seems like a worse deal to only get 100000 of dollars for the same number of dollars going in if, if I could get a million dollars. Yeah. If I knew I was going to croak next Tuesday, I would absolutely buy like as much term insurance as I possibly could. Mm-hmm. And then I'd make Katrina take me out on a really nice date. <laughs> right before you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yes, you know, there is a reality to to that dynamic. You know, term is cheaper um, when you're younger and, and kind of in, in, in that moment. However, what most people don't necessarily know is that term insurance is actually designed to become too expensive. So if you want to talk to me about expensive, you know, do you want the policy that is actually meant to last your entire life and is going to kind of be there for you through the whole thing? Or do you want the policy that, yeah, maybe it's going to start out cheap, but it's actually going to be designed to become too expensive for you at some point. Um, And so when you, you know, chase after that cheaper term insurance policy. And let's just say you pay your cheaper premiums in for your 30 years, but then you go to renew it and boom, you know, that premium just quadrupled, if not more. I've seen it increase by more than that, especially if we're talking about a 30-year term that you had previously. And all of a sudden, next thing you know, it's too expensive. You have to drop it and you have nothing to show for it absolutely nothing. There's no cash value. You don't get anything back. The insurance company literally says, thank you for your money. Have a great day. Hope you don't die tomorrow because (laughs) you have nothing. But you know, know, those of us that have bank on yourself plans and we get dividends, I'm like, okay, if you want to buy term. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Where do you think the profits come from? Right. It's the term premiums. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, which one in that scenario is more expensive? Mm-hmm. The policy yeah. that you paid into for 30, 40, 50 years and then get nothing? Or the policy that, yeah, maybe you had a little bit less coverage. You had to put a little bit more money into it to get the same amount of coverage. But it's absolutely 100% going to pay something out someday, whether that's to you or to your family. Some benefit's going to be derived from that policy and that plan. And by the way, death benefits by design in a whole life insurance policy are always greater than the premiums you've paid in by design. So that means that your family can never receive less than what you've put into it. Mm -hmm. So not only can you be negative every dollar you ever put into it, 
you know, term, you can be negative with what you've put in um, if you drop it and get nothing. But with whole life, you're guaranteed at least your family will get more than what you've paid in. It's, I mean, it's not like actuaries somehow believe that people with term insurance are less likely to die than people who have whole life insurance. You know, the actuarial science is the same. It's the odds that you'll actually need that death benefit that makes the term so much cheaper. And again, 99% of term insurance policies never pay a claim. Mm -hmm. And if we pay a 30-year term at 1000 bucks a year, that's 30 grand that we'll never see if we happen to be lucky enough to survive that term mm -hmm. uh, versus, you know, the, like you said, the death benefit of a whole life policy. It's the difference between renting an apartment and owning a house. That's the best analogy I can come up with. Mm -hmm. And wh which is why, you know, this is kind of generally the path I'll take people uh, down when talking about, you know, kind of it too expensive, talking about the, the cost of it, because I don't think it's, a, it's an expense conversation. I don't think it's a cost conversation. It's a value conversation. Right. Which one's actually going to provide the greatest value to you and your family? Because if you can pay a little bit more to have something that's going to provide more value, isn't that worth it? Mm -hmm. You know, yep. and it's, it's kind of like the cost, cost doesn't necessarily matter as much anymore. Yeah, Holly, you know, this is unlike most whole life insurance that most people may have heard about. I mean, you know, we've brought this up in previous episodes, so I'll just kind of briefly mention, again, this is categorically different than whole life. It is using the chassis of whole life insurance, but it's built with some specific riders that just dramatically add just much more cash value, the stuff you can enjoy while you're alive in the policy in the first few years and really throughout the lifetime of the policy. It also cuts our commissions and the expenses of the death benefit down by 50 to 70%. It gives you that cash value in the very first month so you can start using it for life needs, whatever that might be. Uh, you know, we've talked about the kind of the four key elements too: tax free access to your cash, uh, guaranteed growth every single year, uh, the ability to leave your family an insurance policy that's more than you ever saved into the policy. Mm -hmm. I mean, what else can offer that? And then the ability to finance big purchases. Those four things alone would give us reason to put as much as I possibly could into one of these policies. It's just, it's hard to believe that this isn't what is marketed at, at the Super Bowl. You know, why, why aren't insurance companies letting the world know about this? Uh, it'd be, I'd be curious to pull on the ear of the marketing department, which is probably, you know, one guy who's been rele relegated to the corner of the insurance home office <laughs> and uh, maybe just given like a couple of bits of uh, um, popsicle sticks and glue for his marketing budget, right? <laughs> so, so what are some other things that, <laughs> that's about as bad as it gets, that's really. an opinion. What about you, Katrina? What are some biases you've heard? Um, well, I guess the question I have is why isn't everyone doing this? Like, why isn't everyone dumping term, you know, and getting some solid whole life that allows for good policy loans, you know, from a mutual company, non-direct recognition loans? Why not? Yeah, maybe it goes back to that popsicle stick and glue comment. You know, mm. the, the world just isn't being told about this. I mean, where are we hearing our financial advice? We have whole cable channels devoted to investments in Wall Street. Uh, I mean, entire segments of the population, that's all they talk about is mutual fund this, investment advisory firm that. Uh, Dave Ramsey, uh, Susie Orman, the government. I mean, you, you pick and choose your megaphone they're typically going to be pointing you toward one place. It's all aiming toward Wall Street. Maybe that's why we've never heard of this before, right? I mean, what, what does it benefit the government to announce to the world, to their citizens, their tax-paying citizens, that, oh, by the way, 
yeah, sure, you can do this 401k, but you know, also you have this really awesome strategy that isn't relying on the government, isn't relying on the markets. And oh, by the way, we'll lose out on tons of taxes that we could d- charge you on the gains of this policy later on. It's just not going to be mentioned from the bully pulpit of whatever administration, Democrat, Republican, whatever. And of course, if most of the cable news shows are supported by Wall Street funds, uh, then you're not going to hear a whole lot about things that might draw dollars away from Wall Street. Where do you think the term buy term and invest the difference came from? It came from Wall Street, right? Uh, If you ask a barber if you need a haircut, you can bet what his answer is going to (laughs) be. Hey, I have a quick question. So the term insurance, when someone goes out and sells term versus like a whole life policy, for example, who's going to walk away with bigger commissions? Like do these term guys get paid quite a bit Mm -hmm. on term? Mm -hmm. Like 100%? of commissions? I mean, like, what's the number that comes out yeah, on a sure, term? Surely, surely that they uh, get a ton more clients. It's a quantity question, usually for term insurance premium commissions. Because mm-hmm. so. there's aggressive term insurance agents that mm-hmm. just sell term and they sell it every day, all day. Right. Well, and, you know, most insurance companies like Northwestern Mutual, just as an example, they own Oppenheimer funds. And, you know, that's the mutual funds that they would recommend folks buy as soon as they're done purchasing their term insurance. So they, oh, they know it's a one-two one, punch. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So same with, you know, I mean, nothing against them. There's plenty of other examples out there as well. Most, you know, what's really interesting to me is when people say I've never heard of this before, it's typically folks that uh, have yet to really do much due diligence in terms of their own financial life in general. Uh, I find that most people who are not high net worth clients or, I mean, any public official uh, like congressmen, senators, even the presidents of our you know nation, uh, have been allocating things into uh, allocating their net worth into things that aren't paper wealth. Uh, you know these concepts aren't um, foreign to to most of our presidents and public officers. In fact, they have to disclose where they keep their dollars. And uh, wouldn't you know, it's it's interesting that they keep a good chunk of their own net worth inside whole life insurance and even some other insurance products like annuities. I'd say another reason why we don't hear much about this is most agents and financial advisors aren't willing to take this kind of pay cut to build a policy in your best interest. You know, they'd rather put all your money in mutual funds, ETFs, and get paid that big, fat, juicy commission. And we'll go ahead and tack on some term insurance because, you know, our broker dealer told us to. Uh, So it's difficult to get a man to understand something, especially when his salary depends on him not understanding it. That's one of my favorite quotes from Upton Sinclair. Uh, It's difficult to get a man to understand something, especially when his salary depends on his not understanding it. Uh, So Wall Street really has a grip on most of the marketing and retirement planning services out there. Uh, And when you've been taught to believe that negative equals realistic and positive equals unrealistic, that's a quote by Susan Jeffers, I think it's time to pause and reflect. Are we just saying something isn't possible because it seems too good to be true? Or is it truly positive and something that we should investigate? So tell us a bit about uh, any other biases you've heard of before. Well, I think the biggest one, and this is what gets people in that term ditch that Holly was talking about, you know, it's so cheap that you can agree to $5, you know, a month or $15 a month starting out. And so everybody's like, yeah, no problem. And you kind of get hooked. And it's like a candy effect. It's like, oh, no big deal. I can pay $5 a month. Um, but the, the bias that comes out is this, the premium may be unaffordable for persons of limited financial resources. So... You know, is this, is whole life, um, properly designed whole life insurance, is that just for the elitist 
and the affluent to use because the costs on the front end are more than $5. Um, and and what if what if someone can't afford the premium? Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to you know, kind of having a whole life insurance policy, I guess, you know, even kind of the, the bias and the misconception that people have on this as well is a lack of flexibility too. Um, you know, they'll say that the, the premiums are unaffordable or I'm locking myself into that premium and my, you know, income is is varying and so therefore this isn't a good fit for me. You know, I heard that if I miss just one payment by one penny, they'll take away everything and I'll have nothing. And, um, you know, so I think that's kind of like the, the misconception, the bias that people will have when, they, when they're thinking it through. And, and the reality is there's a lot more flexibility that people think there is, especially when it's, you know, properly designed like we've been talking about. And so when we're designing and putting these plans together, really, you know, you're kind of deciding what the amount you want to do is. You know, we're not coming up to you and saying you absolutely have to put in $2,000 a month starting tomorrow or else (laughs) or something. You know, I mean, that's just not the case. You know, you can tell us, hey, like, this is what fits within my budget. This is what I can afford to do based on, you know, my income, my savings, my other expenses. And that's what we'll work with. You know, sometimes we can help you get a little bit creative and coming up with with other ways if you want to do even more and come up with more creative ways to fund a plan. But, you know, at at the same time, we don't have to do that if you don't want to. And so, you know, you kind of decide the amount and, you know, we'll, we'll help work with you within that and provide you the flexibility that you need. And then even once we've established that amount, whatever it may be, there's still flexibility. So that if you told us, hey, I can afford... X number of dollars, and then, you know, we're one month in, we're six months in, we're five years in, and then all of a sudden you say, hey, actually that, you know, X number of dollars isn't going to help me, or isn't, or I can't afford that anymore, I can't quite do the full amount, um, then we'll say, okay, you know, what is comfortable now? You know, and we'll work with you. There's flexibility to be able to lower your premium payments, we can stop your payments completely. I mean, there's, there's still a lot of flexibility there. Yeah. And in tandem with that, my other question is that I hear a lot is, is this a safe place to put my money? And is it safer than putting it in the banks? Yeah. What makes a bank safe? Uh, You know, we didn't see a lot of safety in the Great Depression. That was where the run on the banks came in. So that's where the Federal Deposit Insurance Commission came in and the FDIC was born. That was supposedly going to insure the banks. Uh, And so that's where uh, the insurance companies uh, are not FDIC insured. Is that a problem? Uh, They are strictly regulated, I'd say even more than the FDIC-insured banks. Uh, The four layers of safety that come with insurance include, one, you're audited regularly when you're an insurance company by state insurance commissioners. So instead of a federal insurance, there's a state insurance commissioner uh, that comes out as well as third parties. So you've got the government, state government, and third-party rating agencies like A&M Best, S&P, the Comdex, to make sure that these insurance companies uh, have cash ready to pay future claims. So even if a company gets into trouble, the insurance commissioner's office basically just takes over the company, the insurance company, and runs the company in the interest of you, the policyholder. So usually that policy would just simply be given to another healthy insurance company. And the only change you'd see, or I'd see, as policyholders is a logo change at the top of our annual dividend statements. So what about AIG? Because during the 2008 crash, almost 500 banks went bankrupt, according to the FDIC. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Uh, with limited time in our episode here, I'll just say that according to 2009, this is a posting on the NAIC website, the AIG life insurance operations did not receive any kind of bailout. So AIG was a big monster of an insurance company. And the life insurance subsidiary of AIG did not cause any of the problems that AIG had in 2008 and so on. In fact, uh, and according to the NAIC website, the life insurance component, the subsidiary of AIG, was actually part of what solved the problem with AIG. It was AIG's non-insurance operations that caused all the havoc. So really, how safe are banks? I think this is important to ask ourselves. When they keep only a fraction of our deposits on hand, how safe are they? So remember, FDIC is not some big, you know, Scrooge McDuck basket of gold coins or something somewhere. They don't have any money. They don't have the deposits to cover all of the nation's banks. In fact, that you know, according to uh, FDIC themselves, they say that only 0.6% of all deposits are actually on reserve with the FDIC. Less than 1% of our money is backed up by any kind of like actual money, dollars, by the FDIC. In 2008, FDIC themselves had to go to Congress to ask $145 billion to bail out the FDIC. What does that tell us? <laughs> so who paid... Who paid for uh, all of those bad banks? Well, who is Congress? Well, who are taxpayers? <laughs> who are, well, okay, you get the point. We are us. We are us. So what if, you know, I don't know if you guys noticed, but after that, the FDIC thought they'd be, you know, really kind to us uh, depositors and raised the limit on federal insurance uh, covering our deposits at banks from 100000 to 250000 Well, what did that do? Nothing. Yeah. They could have raised the limit to a million dollars, right? What what good does that do? It that just means the FDIC will have to go beg taxpayers again during the next crash. I mean, you can go check all this out. This isn't just us saying this. This is on FDIC's own website. In fact, banks are legally required to keep much of their foundation of their own wealth and very safe assets to meet their tier one capital requirements as what? of what this year. What safe assets are you referring to? Yeah. <laughs> so as of this year, bank owned life insurance totaled $142 billion. And that's, again, according to FDIC. So the FDIC itself is saying, hey, bank, you need to buy a bunch of this life insurance to meet our you know, capital requirements for your safest money. Uh, so somehow or another, it never dawns on most financial gurus that you can control this part of your financial life. This is a great quote by Nelson Nash. Let me just finish up our episode by saying the, these two quotes. Somehow or another, it never dawns on most financial gurus that you can control the financial environment in which your money lives. Perhaps it's a, a lack of imagination. Whatever the reason, learning to control it is the most profitable thing one can do over a lifetime. This is all about how you think. That's by Nelson Nash. One more quote by Joe Jordan. He says, when you change the way you see things, the things you see change. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great en ending to our episode. All right. So thank you for joining us for another episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. This has been another episode of the Not Your Average Financial Podcast. To join a financial revolution and start thinking different about money, go to www.nyafinancialpodcast.com and click Request a Meeting. The topics presented in this podcast are for general information only and not for the purposes of providing legal, accounting, or investment advice. 
On such matters, please consult a professional who knows your specific situation.